Today on CityCast Salt Lake, if you follow the Bear River north from the Great Salt Lake up to Preston, Idaho, you'll reach the site of the Bear River Massacre, where on January 29th in 1863, the U.S. Army murdered hundreds of Shoshone families in the largest massacre of indigenous people ever recorded west of the Mississippi. 155 years later, in 2018, the Shoshone Nation bought the land back, including and surrounding the site of the massacre. And now a historical and ecological healing is taking place there. And it has big implications for us downstream. My guest, Aaron Perry, is the former chairman of Shoshone Nation, and he began this whole process with one very bold phone call. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Darren, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ali. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to chat with you about the Bear River Restoration Project. One of the things that is so interesting about it to me is that this, I think, is a land backstory. And I'm curious, could you tell me um, a little bit about the story of how the Shoshone Nation came to to own or to purchase the Bear River site? Yeah, this was a sacred site for thousands of years. We wintered there, and so, but we were never owners of this land, and we're one of the few tribes in the U.S. that does not have a reservation. And so mm. uh, every January 29th, we hold a commemoration on the side of the road at this old DUP monument. Daughters of the Utah Pioneers mm-hmm. Monument that's really horrific and, and terrible. Right across the street is the land. And so one day in, in 2017, I, I was in Preston yeah. at a gas station and there was a, 10 farmers over having coffee in the corner. And I started talking to them about the, the massacre site and, and uh, they were really friendly. And I said, who owns that land? And they said, well, you know, most of it's owned by one guy. He was a great guy. They went on and on about Ben Johnson and what a terrific person he was. And he'd passed. And now his sons, who's an attorney in Salt Lake, mm-hmm. owns it. But he won't sell. Every one of them told me he won't sell. And so I Googled <laughs> Ralph Johnson's name and found out where he worked in Salt Lake and dialed. Uh, before I could even chicken out, I just thought, I'm going to see if I can get hold of this guy. And a few minutes later, Ralph gets on the phone and says, this is Ralph. What can I do for you? And I said, my name's Darren Perry. I'm the chairman of the Northwestern Band of Shoshone <laughs> Nation. Hurry and said it just so I would not get scared about it. And I said, I want to buy your land. <laughs> and so yeah. after what I thought was a 20 minute pause, it was probably like three seconds. He said, let's talk. And from then on, over the next eight months, we had a weekly conversation until we got the deal done. And we signed on the 550 acres on January 28th in 2018, the day before the anniversary of the massacre. I told him it had to happen before so I could announce it at the commemoration. It was a big deal to me to be able to do that. Yeah. How were you able to get the resources together to buy the land? You know, our tribe is not a rich tribe. There's only 600 of us, um, mainly because of the massacre. And so um, we have tribal businesses, uh, too, with the federal government. 
that we've been successful and yeah. just saving money and uh, scrimping along. Uh, I didn't tell the tribe I was calling Ralph. I just called him. And, and then after I went to the tribal council and said, hey, I'm talking to this guy about buying the land. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And they thought it was a wonderful idea. And they go, well, we actually have the money, I guess, depending upon how much he's going to charge us. And uh, it worked out. Now there is an ecological restoration project happening on that site. How did you all get from ownership of the land to getting to this, this restoration project? Well, it wasn't easy, but when we closed on the land, I wasn't ready. We had a lot of tribal members ready to say, good, we're, we're landowners again. Let's just call it a day and let's quit at that. Yeah. But I said, in my mind, I'm going, no, we need to uh, restore the land to what it would look like then. And we need to build an interpretive center at the site to honor the people and their story. Tell the story. No one's ever told their story. My first visit was to Utah State University and I met with two professors, Mark Brunson and Chris Lukey. Yeah. And I said, hey, we just purchased this land. And they knew where it was. I mean, you're here in the Cache Valley, you know where the site is. I just said to them, I want to restore the land to what it would have looked like in 1863. Here's my grandmother's notebook as a guide. Is this possible? They looked at each other and said, yeah, it's possible. But we really ought to drive up there together. I... uh got in the car with them the next day and we drove to the site and we got out and did a walk mm-hmm. and then Mark was taking notes and just doing a in- quick inventory of the area and he said absolutely this is something that we can do here in natural resources. So when you say restore the land to what it looked like before what is the difference like what exactly what's the gap that needs to be closed? Over the years, and 158 years, uh, there's been farming. You know, those old guys in the coffee shop told me, you know, they're just reminiscent on stories. I heard my great-great-grandfather talk about, you know, the people that owned the land after would plow the field and try to plant crops and human remains would come up. And so that's why no crops are planted in that area. It's just cattle grazing. Now you have fences, you have Mm -hmm. cattle grazing, and all of that that modern technology kind of brings to an area. Right. They, the pioneers in the, I think, 1930s and 40s, uh, did a massive plant of Russian olives, which is the most terrible tree in the history of the world. But uh, they brought in this tree because it has a huge root system and it, it drinks a lot of water. Oh. And but no birds want to sit in it because they're thorny and Mm -hmm. they're just not a good tree. And but that place has been taken over with Russian olives over the years. And so and then other weed species that have grown there over time. I knew that's not what it looked like. I knew from my grandmother's writings that it was full of willows and cottonwoods and beaver creek meandered out through the field and Uh, So I knew it was completely Mm -hmm. different than Mm -hmm. what the land I was looking at then. Yeah. And I wanted to restore it to what it would have been then. You brought up your grandmother's notebooks. 
I think that conversations about braiding indigenous wisdom with sort of modern scientific efforts to ecological scientific efforts has become a more popular, more mainstream conversation lately, probably with the publishing of Braiding Sweetgrass, which was a really popular book. I think a lot of people read. Um, What is the role of your grandmother's notebooks in this process, in this restoration process? Well, it serves as our guide. I mean, really uh, not having a lot of information. Native Americans didn't write anything down. Our people didn't write stuff down. Mm -hmm. My grandmother had gone to boarding school, so she was educated. She started writing down all of these stories that she'd heard. She knew the plants. And and like Robin Wall Kimmer said, it's not enough to know the plants. You need to know their songs. My grandmother knew their songs. And so in all of her writing, she wrote down, these are the plants that were there that were used as food and medicine. You know, having that uh, was just a huge plus for us mm. because it gave us a starting point. And then, you know, scientists at Utah State University are now looking at climate adaption and climate change and how maybe some of those plants might not uh, be a good fit because of where we're at in the climate cycles. And if we do plant them, do we take need to take some extra measures to make sure that they can grow? Interesting. Climate you know, all of it's going to play a big role in what we can put back in and what we can't. And, but we want to get it as close to what it looked like. We know we can plant cottonwoods. We know we can uh, clean up Beaver Creek uh, with riparian buffers and reintroduction of beaver. And we can clean up a watershed to reintroduce the Bonneville cutthroat trout. You know, those are all goals that we know we can do. That plant diary will just serve as a guide kind of get us along the way a little bit further even. Why do you think your grandmother decided to make a plant diary? She was so smart. You know, her grandparents and great-grandparents wouldn't have written anything down. They would have passed this knowledge down through storytelling. And I think she knew that uh, the modern world, colonialism, education, all of that was going to change things. And, And we are now a tribe that the world's trying to assimilate us into their culture. And she was now educated. She had an English degree and she had the ability to put this on paper. Yeah. And then she spent the last 20 years of her life putting everything that she'd ever heard from her elders on paper, Wow. which is, it's a huge deal for us because we have all of this old history at our fingertips now. And so she literally changed our tribe's trajectory going forward. There have been a lot of conversations in Utah lately about the Bear River in relation to the Great Salt Lake. What is the relationship between the crisis at the Great Salt Lake right now and this restoration project? The Bear River is the largest tributary that contributes to the Great Salt Lake. And the health of the Bear River absolutely has to be number one priority. But, you know, the health of the Bear River also has to do with the tributaries into the Bear River. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of water rights. With that 550 acres, we received a lot of water rights. And with those water rights, we want to do the restoration of the creek that dumps into the Bear River. What this means long term is we're going to be putting more water into the Bear River that will put more water into the Great Salt Lake. Mm. And really, that's what we need to do to make sure that they both stay healthy. And we're in trouble. We're 
we're in trouble yeah. and we've got to make better decisions. The science is there, you know, but yeah, I don't know if we're not selfish enough to uh, make changes in our life that we need to. Yeah. Well, and I think with conservation efforts for a lot of people, I've worked in the conservation world for a long time. And I think a lot of people see it as being as sort of lacking a story. And I think a lot of that is because there's, it's so far removed the modern movement from indigenous wisdom. And so my hope would be that the story around this project can inspire similar projects in the region. You know, you look at the Jordan River, the Provo River, the Bear River, and the Weber River. Those are the major tributaries that come in to those areas that some restoration work has been done on all of those. Mm. This covers a large area. We're all affected by those rivers. It gives us a chance to maybe organize something mm. that we're doing, like on the Bear River, uh, in your own neighborhoods. And I know some of those cleanup efforts are really gaining more attention. But seriously, we need to really start getting mm. a little more organized and making sure that we're taking care of those four major tributaries that, that go into that wonderful lake. How is the Bear River Restoration Project different? What do you want us to learn from it? What's different is that we're not only using science. So, you know, science plays a big role, but science has deferred most of it to us. We're landowners and not very often you can say that, especially on a river like this. And so what you get is you get indigenous wisdom hmm. of healing the land and how we look at things and how we are exactly the same with no more rights than our animal or plant kinfolk. So as you combine that indigenous wisdom and science and work together and collaborate, I think wonderful things can take place. And I, I think we're kind of on the cutting edge and Bear River can actually serve as a guide and a model for other projects like this, communities need to engage the tribes. They need that indigenous wisdom mm -hmm. to go along with the science and planning to make it really work, I think. I hope projects that get off the ground, I hope they're calling, you know, Utah County. Yeah, paving the lake. I'm appalled that, you know, that development they're proposing on Utah Lake. And I get a call every day about that. I'm not surprised. But I defer to my Ute brothers and sisters mm -hmm. because that was Ute country. Mm -hmm. And I want them to play a leading role with those that are making decisions on what's best for that uh, waterway. Because mm -hmm. they were stewards of that waterway for a thousand years. And mm -hmm. so it makes sense that we consult those who know the lake the best. Without the indigenous wisdom, I think, we're always going to struggle against nature. Mm, yeah. And there's no real healing. No, there, there won't be healing because we don't look at it that way. I mean, society, we don't look at the land like it has rights. We don't look at the plants as they have equal rights to us. Yeah. We've never looked at it that way. We look at it as extraction and a way we can take care of it. And how can that benefit us right. personally? And when you have that worldview, you know, you don't you don't get healing. And so that indigenous wisdom has to be a guiding force in all of this. There are so many people now engaged. All these different groups are coming together to offer their expertise because they see a project that 
can really uh, transform how we look at our environment that we're in today. Yeah. This will be a living learning classroom for decades. This will be an ongoing project forever. And so uh, that's what I really like because my granddaughter the other day came to me and I took her up there and we walked on the fields and I said, I hope one day you're a scientist here. You're an indigenous scientist here doing work on something that's should be important to you, but it's always been important to me and our people. To accomplish something beautiful has been a great thing to see. Darren, thank you so much for your time this morning and for sharing this story with me and with all of our listeners and best of luck on the next phases of this project. Thank you for having me and thank you for shining a light on this. That's wonderful. A little news before we go. You probably know that the Great Salt Lake is at its lowest level since the state began keeping a record of its fill in 1847. Well, there's a bill cruising through the legislature that would establish a $40 million trust fund to be put towards getting as much water as possible back in the lake. Climate activists say the bill is good, no doubt, but they would love to see some legislation that addresses the root causes of our climate crisis. And I have to agree there. As for the bill, it passed the Senate unanimously and is headed to the House where its chances are very, very good. Mostly because the bill's sponsor is the Speaker of the House, Brad Wilson. And if there's one thing I've learned following Utah's legislative sessions, it's that he just might be the most powerful elected in the state. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. If you're happy this show exists, will you rate and review us in Apple Podcasts? We love rates. We love reviews. We love it all. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Yeah, feel free to bring your like full self. You can be opinionated, you know, whatever. Talk about the things you want to talk about.